And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died already. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether it was al he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Amen. May we give heed to the word of our God this morning. Please be seated. Before we get started in, in earnest here, I want to make one plug for Sunday school for next week. And that's because uh, we're going to hit the last sermon for the Gospel of Mark next Sunday, Lord willing. Um, I'll be preaching the final sermon in the Gospel of Mark. And if you're still right where, where uh, our brother Mark here just read, you might see just a few verses down the way, uh, just past uh, Mark 16, verse 8, your Bible may say something like mine does, which is in brackets, some of the earliest man manuscripts do not include 16, 9 to 20. And I'm going to talk about that in Sunday school next week prior to preaching the, the, the final sermon. So for those that may wonder that that's there or maybe never even thought about it or, or may be curious why I'm not going to preach past uh, verse 8, you'll have all of your questions answered next week. So just something to mention. Um, you know, there are certain things in life and, you know, people have uh, used the phrase almost jokingly, really, that sometimes there are things that you can't unsee. You see something and you can't unsee it. Or maybe something, somebody, somebody tells you something and you're like, great, I can't ever not know that again. I can't unknow that. And we, you're then faced with okay, now that I know that thing, you've, you've laid that on me. Now that, I, now that I know that, what am I supposed to do with that information? And that's kind of what we're looking at here today is that there's something that is true and then there is a response that is laid at your feet after that you know that it's true. And if you've taken a second to, to look at the outline in the back, it this portion of scripture that Mark read for us, uh, Mark 15, verses 42 to 47, we're looking at it broken into two parts. That is the reality and the response. The reality and the response. And so I'll just lay the information out there for you. The reality that's being referred to here is that Jesus was dead. The reality at this point in the narrative in Mark's gospel is that Jesus is dead, really dead. There are lots of ways to tell lies, lots of ways to manipulate information. One of those ways is um, a tactic that intelligence agencies use that's known as historical negationism. You don't need to remember that term. But historical negationism, it kind of fits under that category of revisionist history. And so people in the intelligence in industry that want to try to insert lies and want to remove facts from the historical record, they will use this technique. They want to deny that certain things ever happened. And so intelligence agencies or intelligence agents will use this tactic. And, uh, and the author of a book called Spy Wars wrote this about the technique or, the, or one of the tactics of trying to manipulate the historical record. Quote, in support of the revised history perspective, the negationist historian uses false documents 
as genuine sources, presents specious reasons to distrust genuine documents, exploits published opinions by quoting out of historical context, manipulates statistics, and mistranslates texts in other languages. Close quote. So in other words, there is an entire technique, there is a well-thought tactic of how can we try to get misinformation to the public to try to remove something from history so that they don't actually believe that it took place. And that th those techniques and that attempt to remove the reality of the death of Christ, one of the most important facts of all of history, actually took place. The, the attempt took place. In fact, in the second century, there were Gnostic groups that, play, that, that claimed that Jesus a, a looked like he died. It kind of, you know, everybody kind of thought it, that happened, but it was more of an illusion and that really he didn't actually die. There were others that tried to insert misinformation and to say, well, Simon, remember Simon of Cyrene, the guy that was ordered to carry the cross of Christ, somewhere along the way there, they switched places. So yes, there was somebody that died on the cross at that time associated to Jesus, but it wasn't really Jesus. And it isn't just down the line that these lies were perpetrated or that history was trying to be revised. The Pharisees themselves knew the power of that because they themselves were trying to guard against this power of lies. In fact, in, uh, in the parallel account here out of Matthew, in Matthew 27, verses 62 to 66, it says... The next day, that is, the day, the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So even the Pharisees recognized the power of lies, and they were concerned that, in, from their perspective, that lies would be told about Jesus being uh, uh, risen, Jesus rising from the dead, and so they were quite literally guarding against that potential by putting guards at the tomb. But the reality, the reality of Jesus' death can be confirmed from a couple different ways based on our scripture here. The first we have is that there are multiple witnesses. It's always helpful when you have more than one witness. And here we have for us a righteous man, how unusual is this, a righteous man within the Sanhedrin. So this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, so he's there and he's involved. So he's a witness to the death of Christ. We have the Roman ruler, Pilate, who was responsible for convicting Jesus. And he then, in this um, uh, portion of scripture, confirms, hey, like he's really dead. So he confirms that he's dead. Then you have the guy that Pilate actually asked the centurion, he said, hey, is he really dead? And the centurion, however it is, he either was there himself or he got the information and he came back and says, yes, he really is dead, Pilate. Then you also have these two Marys that are mentioned later in the account, all the way down in, verses, in uh, verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph as well. To, that, that were witnesses to the fact that Jesus actually died. Now, there is no legitimate, you know, way to think that a Gentile leader, that a righteous member of the Sanhedrin, um, the unrighteous members of the Jewish 
the Jewish leaders, that a centurion and that these two women are all in cahoots together, right, to acknowledge that Jesus is dead. So we have our multiple witnesses. And then the other thing is we have uh, really a chain of custody. Now, in my previous profession in law enforcement, I'll tell you, um, I had one particular criminal case where in, uh, in the case, it required the uh, drawing blood from the suspect in the case. At that, at that time, we had to use a, a, um, a third party to come actually do the blood draw itself, to conduct the, the phlebotomy. So I went through, I, I used the service that we use. I called the guy. He came out. He drew the suspect's blood for me, but I had a lot of paperwork to do, so I didn't bother standing there while that took place because I was working on paperwork. He did the blood draw. He handed the blood to me. I ended up impounding it into evidence. Okay, now you fast forward, and this is what happens. The case goes to trial, and the man that had done the blood draw had enlisted in the military and had gone o- and, and was actually deployed and had gone overseas. And what that did is that subtracted one piece out of the chain of custody because I did not witness the blood draw. If I had stood there to watch him do it, even if it wasn't me, if I had stood there, then I could have testified in court that no, I saw that blood come from that body and it was given to me and I impounded it into evidence. But just because I took my eyes away and then he was not available to be there to say, yes, I'm the one that, that did this. Of course, for my career, I learned a very valuable lesson from that and never, and never left the presence again. But I'm trying to illustrate the point of the value of chain of custody. Even our current legal system recognizes the value of chain of custody. So that if somebody says, well, how do you know? I mean, if we're talking about ultimate consequences, if you're talking about a criminal case, then one individual's you know, future depends on these things, then of course they're going to ask those questions. Well, how much greater uh, are the stakes in this case where we're talking about the death of these people that are claiming uh, a man of the, is the Messiah that we know for sure that he was in that tomb and that he was raised from the death, or uh, raised from the grave, that is. And All of that is solved by this account that Mark gives us. Because if you look back to verse 40, who is there witnessing the death of Jesus? Mark 15, verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and of Salome. And now we get all the way through. So they're, they're standing there witnessing the death of Jesus. And then you take that all the way to the point in verse 47 where it says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. There was never a break in the chain of custody and the And the record of Holy Scripture gives that to us. That's just one piece of what is given to us to ensure that we know that any of these lies that could have been perpetrated are untrue and that they are, in fact, lies and that Jesus really did die. Now, maybe you're sitting here today and thinking, how important is that really? Well, I would say this. The entirety of the gospel depends on the fact that Jesus Christ actually, that it was Jesus on the cross, that he really did die, and he was actually placed in that tomb. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where uh, Paul is writing to the church there, and he's addressing the matter actually of the resurrection. And he's talking about the fact that if there is no resurrection, that basically Christians are a bit of a joke in verses 16 and 17, in writing about that, he says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people most to be pitied. So it stands to reason that if Paul is saying that the resurrection of the dead, and specifically the resurrection of Christ, if there's any chance that that did not take place, that we are the most pitiable and the most hopeless of people. So, of course, that means that for him, if, if that applies to his resurrection, then by, by uh, it is uh, analogically true, it is automatically true that he would have to have died or we too still fit in that most pitiful and hopeless category. The entirety of the gospel hangs on the reality that Jesus died. And Mark does us the favor here in this portion of Scripture to confirm for us that Jesus died. But in addition to that reality, we see a response. And in fact, what Mark gives us is a particular response, the response of this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. This is the first time that we've ever heard of this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. Um, we're, we're, we're just now introduced to him at this particular moment in the account, but what we learn about him is absolutely instructive. Now, we get a little bit of background information here in verse 42 that helps to explain why Joseph does what he does. In verse 42 it reads, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. So he's giving us this background that it is actually Friday. So any day, the day of preparation, it's not like capital D, capital P, the day of preparation, like that's on the calendar. Oh, hey, you know, January 22nd is the day of preparation. The day of preparation is any day that precedes the Sabbath. That is the day of preparation. You are preparing for the Sabbath. This one in particular, is unique because the Passover falls on the Sabbath. So the Passover is a particular day of the year on the calendar. So if you want to think about Christmas, Christmas is a, is a date that we celebrate, uh, December 25th, but it could fall on any day of the week. In fact, this year it happens to fall on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. Well, in a similar way, what we have here in this account is we have the fact that Passover falls on the Sabbath. So Mark is laying out this background for us and saying, well, this is what we have. This is the day of preparation. So we know for sure that this is a Friday. This is the day before the Sabbath. He even goes out of his way to to, to clarify for all the Gentile readers when he says the day of preparation. He's talking about the day before the Sabbath. And in addition to that, uh, it's, it's of even greater importance because this particular Sabbath is also the Passover. And the, uh, the Jews did not want to leave bodies hanging on a cross during a Sabbath, and certainly not during a Passover that fell on the Sabbath, which is why in the other accounts as well, it's the Jews that make the request from the Roman uh, officials to break their legs. They're the ones that say, hey, can you please break the legs of the criminals so that they'll die? They need them to die. The Jews want them to die so that they can go ahead and take them down because they don't want the bodies hanging up there during Passover because it would violate, um, it would violate the, law, uh, the, the, the law in Deuteronomy. The, the Romans don't have those same sentiments. In fact, dying a death on the cross uh, could last two or three days. They, you, a man could be on the cross suffering painfully for two to three days, and in addition to them Uh, not minding the fact that it took that long, is that they would also allow the body to just rot. They would leave the body hanging up there, and then whatever animals happen to get to the body or as it decayed is just all part of the same punishment and sends the message to the people that see it. But in this case, we have the Jews that make the request, so they go to the uh, government officials and say, hey, can you please break the legs of the three criminals so that we can get them off the cross and get them buried somewhere, dispose of the bodies. 
they're more interested in obeying the law, which, you know, I guess they get a little bit of credit, maybe, because they want to obey the law in Deuteronomy about not leaving somebody that is hanged on a tree up there before nightfall. But what they're not particularly, or there's no indication that they're interested in, is the dignity of the men that are on the cross, and for that matter, for Christ. Now, when the Romans go up there to break their legs to try to make sure that they're going to die in time for these guys to get buried, they find that Jesus is already dead. Now, the system allowed for, the Romans allowed for, family members to come to them and to request the body. So instead of the criminals being, uh, you know, randomly buried or buried randomly in in some um, place, some burial ground some way, they could request the body. But the problem, of course, is even as a family member requests the body, you're basically associating yourself with the shame. You're making a decision, okay, I'm going to go get that body. And somebody, if it's their family member, you can still see why, hey, I'm ashamed of what they did and the fact that they were hung on a cross, but I'm still going to go get the body and take care of that because they are a family member. What is absolutely unheard of is somebody that is not a family member that goes and requests the body of a treasonous criminal. He's been convicted of a crime. He's dead and hanging on a cross. So enter Joseph of Arimathea. And our guy Joseph, we learn a few things about him in verse 43 here. We learn that he's a man of reputation. He's a man of wealth. In fact, uh, so what we have here in Mark's account is it says Joseph of Arimathea is a respected member of the council. So the council that it's referring to is the Sanhedrin itself. He's a respected member of the council. In Matthew's account of this same thing, it explicitly says that he's rich. So he's rich. He is a respected member of the council. And what we see here as well is three things. There are three things that he does in verse 43. And the first thing it says is that he was looking for the kingdom of God. He's looking for the kingdom of God. So there's no question that what we're talking about is a man that even though he is a member, he is a religious leader that is um, a member, a respected member of the Sanhedrin, he does not fit into that category where Jesus was condemning the Pharisees and the scribes and the other religious leaders. He actually was looking for the kingdom of God. In Luke's account, it says that he was righteous. In Matthew and John's account, it says that he is a disciple of Jesus. And then also in Luke 23 and verse 51, it says explicitly when it's referring to, remember the the kangaroo court and everything that the Sanhedrin did uh, to to, uh, bring about a conviction of Jesus and to say that he deserved death. Luke 23, 51 explicitly says that, that Joseph had not consented to their decision and action. He, he, he was not a part of that, okay? This guy is legit as far as Christ is concerned. Biblically, this guy is legit. The second thing he did is he took courage and he went to Pilate. So start thinking this through here. We have a guy that is wealthy and a guy that has status within leadership. He is a respected member of the council. He had everything to risk. His reputation in that community, his reputation among all the other members of that council that he was a part of. I would imagine that if things go poorly for him in either of those environments, it has the potential of a financial impact for him and for his family. And instead, what he does is he actually uses that status. He uses that position that he is in to get an audience with Pilate. The average person can go talk to Pilate. He can't just walk up and say, hey, can I ask a question? Can I have the body of Jesus? It would require somebody of the status of Joseph of Arimathea to even get an audience with Pilate. So he did not avoid conflict 
to maintain his position, to maintain his wealth, to maintain his title. Instead, he used that position to demonstrate obedience. And then the third thing that Joseph of Arimathea did is he asked for the body of Jesus. Just the fact. So now he's used his position just to get in the presence of Pilate. And what he does is he asks for the body of Jesus. Remember, it's his own peers that created this scenario. They're the ones that sent guards to, along with Judas, to the Garden of Gethsemane to go get Jesus. They're the ones that brought Jesus to the uh, high priest's house. They're the ones that held under cover of darkness this little court case where they decided he was deserving of death. They're the ones that went to Pilate to manipulate the system and to manipulate Pilate specifically to get him to convict Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea is a respected member within that same council. So by him going and asking for this body, he is automatically, unequivocally outing himself. There's no like, hey, talking on the side, um, you know, can you, give, can you slide this out the back door and not tell anybody? None of those things are happening. By him making this decision to courageously go before Pilate, and then to ask for the body of Jesus, he is now, in a sense, despising the shame and instead identifying with Jesus. He is making a conscious, public decision to be identified with Jesus at the moment when Jesus had to have been in his, mo- in his least popular state. Sure, there, I imagine that there were people that had no trouble whatsoever associating themselves with Jesus when he was doing wonderful things. In fact, you can probably see a whole bunch of those people back when he fed the 5,000, right? Oh, they were following him all over the place. But as soon as he turned around and, and said some hard things to those folks, what did they do? They packed their bags and left. They're like, whoa, I'm, I mean, we're not a part of that. And now you have... From that point, worldly, from the worldly perspective of Jesus giving them what they want, of feeding the 5,000 all the way uh, uh, to the point now where he has been convicted, and not only convicted, he's gone to the cross to die this horribly humiliating death, and now that he's dead, it's at that point that Joseph has not only used his position to get an audience, but to say, I'm with him. I am asking for his body. The cost for Joseph had to have been very high. Now we know that, of course, Pilate, in granting permission to Joseph to have the body, that all fits within the sovereign plan of God and how all of these things play together. But, you know, we get kind of another, another nugget there that Pilate knew Pilate knew that he wasn't actually guilty, which is why I think he also, just another factor as to why he would grant that, that, um, that permission to Joseph of Arimathea, because he knew better. And uh, rich and prominent folks in the Sanhedrin would certainly have servants. We already know for sure that Joseph was rich. So after getting the permission from Pilate, then Joseph and whoever his servants were, and however many they had, they got to work. Remember, they have a very small window to work with. He gets the permission, and then they have got to go to work. Remember when um, the Pharisees went to talk to Pilate? You remember that they would not even step foot onto Pilate's, uh, basically, property? because they were concerned. So I'm not even talking about the godly ones. I'm talking about the ones that were trying to get Jesus crucified. These are the ones telling the people, getting them to say crucify him. They wouldn't step foot onto the property of Pilate because they did not want to uh, cause themselves to be unclean so that they could not participate in the Sabbath and also then in the Passover that was about to take place. So Joseph, being a member of this council, certainly would know 
what takes place if you are going to touch a dead body. If he touches a dead body, he is now unclean for seven days. So he too would not be able to participate in Sabbath and in uh, the Passover that is about to, to happen. So it's likely he had servants. He gets these servants at work. They, once he gets the permission, then go ahead and get the body of Jesus off of the cross, and then they're going to go about the, um, the protocol of wrapping Jesus. Now, there's no record here that Jesus' body was cleaned, but it's, uh, it's assumed that that would take place. That was a normal thing to do. They're not going to wrap a, a bloody body, but they, they wrap Christ's body and had him placed in a new tomb that was sealed with a stone. So we have then all of these facts that testify to the, to, to the truth that, that, that Joseph was rich, that he was using servants. He would even have to have the servants for the sake of moving, um, moving the, the stone for the tomb. And to even own a tomb or to have the, the, um, the money to go buy a tomb, a tomb that was cut out of the rock would require a lot of resources. You know, the, the standard use of these tombs is they were actually multi-generational. So there would be a tomb that's cut out of a rock, and then they would carve these table or shelf-like um, um, spaces within the tomb, lay the wrapped body on the shelf, seal it, and then once the body had sufficiently rotted and decayed, and all that was left was the bones, is they would take the bones back off and then put them into a vault that was beneath the tomb. And so you've probably read in places in the Old Testament where it talks about the fact that they took the bones to be with their fathers. Well, what they're doing is they're taking the bones out of the tomb, uh, taking the body out of the tomb that has since decayed and taking the bones and putting them in the vault where the other people within their family had died. And then in that way, you get to continue to use this expensive tomb. You keep putting your dead family members in there, and then as, as uh, the decay takes course, uh, uh, runs its course, you then free up that space, and then they are, in a sense, gathered to their fathers. Now, I've given you a lot of kind of factual information. I, I think laying the, 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 the groundwork for the reality that Jesus was really died, it's important, it's crucial to the gospel. But maybe you've never even really questioned that, or even if you've heard somebody question that, you, you don't give it any real credence. And I've given you details that have to do with this particular guy, Joseph of Arimathea, that demonstrated his response and um, how, uh, to, to all of these things that have happened. But as this relates to you, let's look at the reality and the response again. First of all, in the reality... Comparing this to what Joseph of Arimathea did, or in the, in the reality, we have the sacrificial lamb. He was slain. His blood was shed so that those that repent and believe will, in fact, receive forgiveness. In other words, it's the objective reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a truth. Either you believe it or you don't believe it. Either you have truly repented of your sins and placed your faith in the one and only person that can cover that sin in Jesus Christ or your soul is in peril. You are then traveling the wide path that leads to destruction. The answer is in black and white right here, as simple as, look, Jesus actually died. And either you believe that that death was for your sins, or you are placing your eternity at risk. But I want to talk to my brothers and sisters here for a moment about what Joseph of Arimathea did, and I want you to compare this to your own life. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, he had the authority, he had the status, he had the reputation. He had the money. 
so that all of these things could take place. And he put all of those on the line, and he acted courageously when he went before Pilate. I have a question for you. Could this be said of your faith? Could this be said of your faith? Is there anything in your life that you are unwilling to sacrifice for God? Anything, anything in your life that you are unwilling to sacrifice for God? I think it's easy for us to always look at the people that have lots of stuff and go, well, sure, it's easy for them. Look at what they have. Look how the Lord has blessed that person. So he gave up a little bit. Come on. I think that we could look at Joseph of Arimathea and go, well, sure, that guy was willing to do that. But the fact of the matter was, uh, the fact of the matter was, he was a respected member of the council. He had servants. We know he was rich. He had all of these resources. Those are the kind of people that should be sacrificing, because look at how much they can do for Christ. I want to remind you of the parable of the talents. In the parable of the talents, you will remember that Jesus, when he was telling that, he gave some of the He gave some of the servants five talents. Within the parable, the, the master gave some of the servants five talents. He gave some of them two talents. And he gave one of them one talent. And after that, remember that the one that had five went and made five more. And then the one that had two went and made two more. And the one that had only one buried it in the ground. I failed to write my... Oh, there it is. And so... Uh, in doing that, remember then what Jesus said to the one that, that took five and made five more and to the one that had, was given two and was able to produce two more. He said, and this, so this is out of Matthew 25, verse 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much enter into the joy of your master. The one that had been given much heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And then do you remember the response of the one that only had a little bit when he buried it in the ground? He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have, no, have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The point of this parable is not how do I move from the status of being a one-talent guy or a two-talent guy to a, you know, to a five-talent. That's not it at all. What Jesus was saying in this is that whatever it is that you have been given, you are responsible 
for being faithful for what you have. And within this parable of the talents, he's pointing out that if you have only been given this much, only this much in your life and in your circumstances, you are responsible to use that much for the glory of God. And how appropriate, how stark, I should say, is the contrast between what Joseph of Arimathea did and how it's described about him and what this one talent man says in Matthew. In Matthew, the one talent guy says, I was afraid. And in Mark, Joseph of Arimathea used everything he had courageously. If you have been given much, if you have been entrusted with much, then you must use it to the glory of God. If you have been given next to nothing, you must use the next of nothing that you have been given to the glory of God. You know, for Joseph of Arimathea, to, you know, you think about that little space of time. It's a small window, right? That little space of time that has been immortalized in Holy Scripture. Here we are. It's in the Gospel of Mark in verses, or in chapter 15 from verses 42 to 47, we have immortalized what this guy did, Joseph of Arimathea. What had to have lined up for that to take place at that time so that he could accomplish that. I don't know. Millions of things had to have gone the way that they did for him to have the status that he had, the wealth that he had in the group that knew him under that particular civil government at that time of history. All of these things had to line up for Joseph of Arimathea to have the opportunity in that small little window, we're talking like a two-hour window, to do and be courageous with what he knew to be true because he was seeking the kingdom of God. He had a small window to work with to be obedient and to be able to leverage all of those other things that God brought about at that particular moment. This is reminiscent of Esther, the book of Esther and all that, all the crazy stuff in the book of Esther that takes place. And she's like, well, what am I supposed to do? Mordecai comes to her and all the, all the stuff that goes on in that whole story throughout the book. And she's like, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. She's a female in a, in a, in a, in a world where, where women don't account for much. And yet she's supposed to, you know, she's being asked to go before the king, which could cost her her life. But, but all of these things, you know, are hanging in the balance. You know, do you realize what I could lose? Should I do this? And do you remember what Mordecai said to her? You know, I'm seeing the nods. This is out of Esther 4.14. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. All of the details that brought her to that moment, this you know, random, air quotes, woman that happens to have access to the man in power that can spare the life of one man that actually extends to the entirety of the Jewish people at that time. I mean, a million things or more had to have lined up But we can read that in Esther and go, wow, that is amazing, all the things that God did so that she, at that one moment, had the opportunity to be obedient. Because Mordecai, when he uh, said this to her, he didn't say that God's God's plan isn't going to be thwarted, right? The relief may come from somewhere else, and you and your family may perish. So his will is going to be done. But here's the question, Esther. You, for this very point, for this very event, have been given the opportunity 
to be obedient. It's all been lined up so that you could be obedient right here and right now for such a time as this. And I would say that we can see that very clearly for Joseph of Arimathea too. We've never heard of this guy. And yet all of these things had to have taken place historically in his life to have the status that he had, to have the money that he had, to have the, uh, the connections that he had to be able to get the presence with Pilate and to courageously make his request. And he was faithful. So have you thought that it's possible that every success that you've ever had, every failure that you have ever had, that every win and every loss, the spouse that you have or that you don't have, or this particular children that you have, or the house that you live in, the job that you've been given, this particular time in history that you've been placed, that this is your for such a time as this? That you don't have to look at your age and go, well, I wonder if God has one of those moments in my life when I get a little bit older and I'm established in my career or I'm established in my marriage and all of these things kind of line up and God's going to do something that gives me an opportunity to be obedient, that brings glory to him, you know, 10 years, 15, 20 years down the line when all these things kind of line up? No. What if it's right now? Or maybe you think to yourself, well, those days, that's in the rearview mirror. Like, I, whatever it is God was doing in my life, boy, I remember when how I was so faithful to God and he had given me the health to, to be productive for his kingdom and I was capable of doing so much more than I do now. Boy, that I, you know, if ever there was going to be a time that God was going to use me to glorify him in one of these moments of conflict where I have to make a decision and to really step up and to, and to use everything that he's given to me to glorify him, that, it, that would have been 15 years ago, I bet. How about no? How about it's right now? What if all of that stuff in your past is leading to right now? What if you are in the physical condition you are in right now because for such a time as this? We just had a Sunday school this morning that talked about the omnipotence of God, the power of God. We had a previous Sunday school a week or two ago that talked about God's providence and how he's working all of these things out. This bears itself out in your life. Right here, right now, this place, this is where we are. Maybe God has lined up my problems, me, meaning Pete, me, not, I'm not putting myself in place of you. I'm talking about me. Maybe all my issues have brought me here right now to preach this message to you so that your issues come out, so that you will seize this moment to honor God instead of shrinking and saying, but I don't want to lose what little I have. I don't, if I'm, the, I'm on the younger side of the spectrum and I go, well, wait a minute, do you realize what I would sacrifice if I had to take a stand for God in this moment of conflict? Because I got a lot of years ahead of me and if I head down that road, I got no future. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and you know, you're advanced in years and you're thinking, well, I really don't have much to offer anyway, so uh, since I don't have much to begin with and I only have a little bit in my life, I only got a little bit left in the tank, and so therefore I, I want to hang on to what I have and just kind of ride it out, then you are missing the opportunity that God could be bringing about for you right here and right now. And I don't know what that is for you. I got my own issues, my own struggles, of trying to be faithful for that reason too. When you are faced with conflict between a, uh, a world, honor, uh, in this world between making that decision, am I going to honor the Lord and to act courageously for the kingdom? Am I going to do it or am I going to shrink to try to keep my hands on what I have because I'm too afraid of sacrificing something like that? Another way to put that is bury it parable of the talents. I could use exactly the entire package that God has made me to glorify God, even if 
it comes with sacrifice, or maybe I could bury it and not worry about it and cruise on. Because you realize Joseph of Arimathea could have just chosen, like, chosen not to choose. And we would never have heard of him. God would deal with him. It would be somebody else's name in there, I guess. I don't know. God would have worked it out. He would accomplish his purpose. But Joseph was faithful. You have an opportunity to be faithful. And the difference between those two answers is the difference between hearing, take what little you have and give it to the one who's going to be responsible, and hearing the words, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. And just like Joseph of Arimathea, you, me, it's a small window. It's a small window. We don't know how small the window is, but we all know it's not big. We only get so much time, all of us, to make these answers, to make these commitments. And just another thing, just one last thing I want to point out. God knows that it's not easy. I'm not saying that it's a piece of cake. And the reason we know it's not easy is because in Mark, it even says in verse 43 that, he, that Joseph took courage. Taking courage, that means, it, that means it was tough. That means he had internal conflict. That means he was struggling, but he chose to take courage. And we, too, have the opportunity this week. It may be today. I don't know. You are probably going to be faced with the opportunity to take courage. So instead of worrying about what it might cost you, what you might lose, how about instead you act courageously and focus on the reality of what Christ accomplished and the fact that he really was dead pardon the pun, I guess, that Mark gave us enough information. He put the nail in the coffin and instead choose based on that reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you can and you have been given the opportunity to act courageously in your faith. Let's pray. Lord God, sometimes in the what seem to be the mundane facts that take place. We read this, and it, 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 it's, it's, it's a narrative. It's telling us this is what a guy named Joseph did, and he went and talked to Pilate, and things happened, and he buried Jesus, and this is how it all went down. But, Lord, we know that in addition to the truths that existed in historical reality, that these stand for things that have great theological truth, and when we see the courage that Joseph of Arimathea showed, it's not because he was some great and strong and mighty man. It's because he was seeking the kingdom. And Lord, we pray that we would not just be seekers of the kingdom of God, that we too, that as disciples of Jesus, would act courageously, that we would see clearly the conflicts that are taking place in our lives, the opportunities to serve and to just step up and to do it and not to be worried about what it might cost, but instead to the great glory that it might bring you. In Jesus' name, amen.